Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management, online fundraising, and volunteer management software that helps small to medium nonprofits like First Tee of Greater Akron. After just one year with Boomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear their experience or visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising. It's not easy. A lot of people are not going to believe you. A lot of people who do what you do are not going to believe in you. A lot of foundations who believe in you don't believe in you enough to fund you. Welcome back to What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Today, I'm interviewing Gerald A. Moore Sr. Gerald is a CEO, visionary, and thought leader for young Black males committed to empowering and inspiring the next generation of leaders. He founded Mission Fulfilled 2030 with a clear purpose to provide opportunities and mentorship to underserved communities. Under Gerald's leadership, Mission Fulfilled 2030 has grown from a startup with zero funding to a nonprofit organization that has raised over $400,000 and impacted the lives of over 7,000 young people. In this episode, Gerald generously shares his experience starting Mission Fulfilled and what some of those initial roadblocks and gates were that were so surprising when he was just starting out. We'll dive into the challenges that smaller nonprofits face when it comes to fundraising and provide actionable strategies for success. We'll also talk about what you need to reach out for grant funding in the first place, some things to consider when setting up your nonprofit board, and what can keep you motivated when you face all of those very common challenges for new nonprofits. Gerald gives such good advice for folks who are starting out, from self and community care to staying focused on the mission. There is so much inside this episode for all nonprofits, but for small and starting organizations in particular. So let's dive in so you can meet Gerald. And I am so excited to be here today with Gerald A. Moore Sr. Gerald, welcome to What the Fundraising. Thank you, Mallory. I'm grateful to be here. When I found What the Fundraising, I was like, I need to be on this show. And I love what you're doing for the nonprofits, especially the smaller nonprofits. Thank you for saying that. And I loved your outreach. I'm so excited for our conversation today. I've loved learning more about the work that you're doing and your organization. So why don't you just give everyone a little introduction to you, your work, and what brings you to our conversation today? Well, thank you. So everyone, I am Gerald A. Moore Sr. And I'm the founder of Mission Fulfilled 2030, where we inspire, educate, and activate at-risk BIPOC boys in tech and STEM. And how I got here is after a 20-year career, As a federal government contractor focused on cybersecurity and management consultant, I realized that there was not a more influx of young Black males coming into the tech and STEM space. And based on my background and being, by the grace of God, fortunate to make it to this level, considering I graduated high school with a 1.69 GPA, and people ask me, how do you become an engineer when you graduated with a 1.69 GPA, and I have to talk about, well, my aptitude had no relationship with my grades because I'm a first-generation college graduate. So 
for the most part, college wasn't in the cards for me. And if I had not been an All-State football player, I wouldn't have realized that I could have gone to college. So over the 20 years of being in corporate, I realized that something had to be done to go back to the younger Black males to help them realize that you have a space here. You can leverage your genius, your athleticism, your entrepreneurship in the tech space, but people like me need it to be visible. And what happens when Black men actually make it out of their circumstances, if they've come from circumstances like what I come from, a low-income family, Title I school district, and I never had a Black male educator. So my outlook on what I could do was limited based on where I came from. So I wanted to go back into community and show them that, hey, Black men can exist and are not monolithic in what we can do in relation to young Black males. Here's our top four. We can go to the NBA. We can go to the NFL. We can do hip hop. And unfortunately, many of us get caught up in drug abuse and and selling drugs. So I needed to go back into my community and say, hey, as an engineer, we have an opportunity here to not only change our lives, but change the lives of our family and our communities. Wow. And as you've started this organization, I'm curious, like what have been some of the most surprising things that you've seen as you've been addressing this issue? How philanthropy works. The biggest surprises to me is how philanthropy works. So when I started the organization, now, first of all, when you get into the nonprofit sector, especially coming from corporate, you're in the business of capitalism on the corporate side. And if it makes sense, we do the deal. We do the deal and we move forward. But on the philanthropy side, that's not necessarily the case. Because first, you go through this whole process of getting your 501c3 nonprofit status. And because I'm in the tech and STEM space, people say there are tons of money for tech and STEM in the nonprofit sector. Yes, there is. But gaining access to that funding is a whole nother ballgame. So in relation to we started our organization with nothing and we were able to raise our first little bit of money, grassroots funding, like online campaigning. And because I come, I have an engineering background. I've worked for several big contracting firms. I have a huge network, primarily on LinkedIn. So randomly, I decided, all right, today is my last day in this environment, and I'm going to run this nonprofit full time. When I did that, I made this announcement on LinkedIn, and an outpouring of people reached out to me and said, hey, I want to support this initiative. Now, I already had like fundraising campaigns set up and we were able to raise our first $100,000 that way, which helped us to get our programming going. And I had already been doing this programming prior to being in the nonprofit space. But once I was there and operating as a nonprofit, trying to get dollars from the foundations is a task. I realized that it was a task. It's not just that you put in your application you show that you're doing good work and you get funding. It does not work like that at all. And that was the biggest hurdle getting in and learning how philanthropy really works and how the nonprofits really work in relationship to actually getting your programs funded. I think that likely what you are talking about relates to a lot of people who are listening to this show. And I think that 
there's this piece that I always felt as a fundraiser where I was like, there must be something that everybody understands but me. Like the dots were just not connecting. And I was like, there must be this secret that everybody gets but me about how these decisions are made or how this actually happens. So can you go into a little bit more detail about what it have been some of the surprising hurdles that you've faced or some things that you've learned throughout the years that it's like, oh, this has really shifted or changed the way I've been able to resource our organization? Absolutely. So one of the first hurdles that I came into was the budget conversation. So you go in and you're having this conversation. They say, what's your budget? And I'm like, we do the work. Like a lot of organizations, they, they function on, you have a budget and then you run a program. But when you start with no money, you run the program and then you figure out how you're going to get the money. So we were doing great work and we were impacting boys in a major way. And the conversation, well, what is your budget? Well, we have no budget. We do whatever we need to do to make these programs happen. And based on my relationships, I'm able to get people to work for me. I'm able to get volunteers. I am tech and I also am an educator. So I'm able to deliver the programming for little to no cost. So when it was about budget, I was like, we just do what's necessary. So that was one thing, trying to figure out how do I take my volunteer services and translate that into dollars so that I now have a budget. But coming from corporate, I'm like, we do the work. Like as an entrepreneur, like sometimes you don't have money, but you figure out how to do it. But in the nonprofit space, they don't understand that, hey, we don't have a budget. This is why we're reaching out to you. We have something that works and you're asking us for the money to do it. And we're like, we're doing it and we're doing it successful. And there's a huge disconnect there. So then I'll go to another, I applied for a grant and actually they came to me. They came to me and said, we really like the work that you do and fill out this application. We really like to support it. And then at the end, they asked me if I had a logic model. It's like, well, what do you mean a logic model? Like, I am the logic model. Like, we <laughs> built this whole organization based on my story and how I came from this low income situation. And I managed to graduate high school and managed to graduate college. I am the logic model. Like... <laughs> So then I had to figure out, okay, this is part of the process. I need to develop a logic model. So I need to have my budget. I need to have my logic model. So there's just all of these different hurdles that you have to climb. But when you're coming from outside of the space and you just want to do good work in your community, like there's no help for it. There's no help desk that you could call and say, hey, I have this nonprofit and this is the work that I'm doing. And the help desk comes back and says, Gerald, put together your logic model, put together right? There's none yeah. of that, right? But yeah. fortunately, there's podcasts like yours where you get a chance to talk to a variety of different people. So if someone's trying to start a nonprofit or you work with a volunteer with a nonprofit, but you really don't know what the inner workings are like, and you're like, well, why can't we get funded? Like we're doing really good work. Why are we not getting the funding that some of these other organizations are getting the bigger organizations? Because there's a lot of processes that are in front of just doing the work. And I think that's the disconnect between philanthropy and small community grassroots nonprofits. We may not have all of those things in place, but you have to look at the work that these organizations are doing 
and then figure out how to support them. You actually have the institutional knowledge. I didn't come into this with the institutional knowledge of how philanthropy works. But what I was expecting philanthropy to say to me was, Gerald, you're doing amazing work. Oh, you don't have a logic model? Here's what a logic model looks like. Let us help you build this logic model. Oh, you don't have a budget? Well, here's how your budget should look. Here's how you do it. What's the value of the work that you're currently doing? But instead of that, they close the door in your face. They close the door in your face. And it's like, okay, the value of the work I'm doing means nothing to you because of these standard operating procedures that you've put in place, basically as a gatekeeper to not give funding to people who are doing awesome work in their communities. Yeah. Hard about what you're saying too, is that there isn't even really a way for foundations to make declarative statements about what those things are in a standardized way, right? They could be like, this is what we want to see when we are talking about seeing your budget, or this is what we want to see about your theory of change. But it's not as if there are, other than audited financials and accounting, there are very few consistent expectations when it comes to how we demonstrate the impact of our work. And so that even makes it, you know, you go back and you start to Google some of these things and it's like, there are tons of different ways to do this. Right. And so that adds this whole other barrier. So when you started to face more of those institutional barriers at the beginning, but you had had this success with crowdfunding, essentially, like community fundraising to get you off the ground, How did that impact your individual giving donor strategy? Like what role have individuals played and those aligned relationships played in helping you build the organization? Again, coming from my management consulting background, I realized, okay, there's some standard operating procedures I need to put in place. So all of the things that they started feeding me back, okay, I can put those in place. But then I started to participate with the different philanthropic communities. I got a membership with AbbVie. Are you familiar with AbbVie? I've heard the name. I don't know them. Yeah. So AbbVie is an organization that supports BIPOC people that are in philanthropy. So they have all of these different resources to support minorities and BIPOC people who are in philanthropy. So I got involved with that. I met a group of folks on Clubhouse and we actually started this nonprofit community on Clubhouse And we created a show called Pitch Your Nonprofit. So basically, I come from an entrepreneurship background as well. So we start teaching people who ran small nonprofits in the BIPOC community how to pitch their nonprofit, how to actually come on stage and say who they are and what their mission is and what the vision is. And by getting into that, I met a ton of people. I met a ton of people who said, Gerald, you need to talk to this person or you need to talk to that person. So basically just immersing myself into the nonprofit community and the philanthropic community, I was able to get the education that I needed to kind of position us to where we are now, where we're not where we want to be in relation to having a full paid staff or being fully funded with our programs. But we have received four grants to date. And it's interesting when you talk about what's a major donation for a small organization versus a large organization. So I remember going to one of these nonprofit meetings and they were talking about major donation. I raised my hand and I was like, a major donation to us is $25, Mm. right? (laughs) If we can get a bunch of people to donate $25, 
then that's a major donation to us. But we got our first major donation from the Jack Kent Cook Foundation, which recognized our work in their community and reached out to us and said, hey, we have a grant that you can apply for. And they actually helped walk me through that because we were a startup at that time. And I still consider us a startup three years in, but I started to meet people who connected me with other people. And I realized that like any other business venture, philanthropy in the nonprofit sector is a relationship business. It's a networking and relationship business. And this is what has helped us to move from our grassroots funding, which we still, that's a major part of what we do. Because until we get that major funding coming in every year that makes us fully fundable, we have to, one, have our grassroots funding in place. Two, we have great fee-for-services. We've been able to partner with some schools for fee-for-service programs, which on the entrepreneurial side, that's what's going to keep us sustainable in, the, in relationship to the work that we do in the future. Yeah. What advice would you give? I mean, you're already starting to give a lot of it like in here, but for somebody who's listening to this and they're thinking about starting a new nonprofit, what's some advice that you would give them before they do or whether or not they should and sort of what they should be considering both in terms of their personal skill set, but also their community skill set in terms of whether or not they're really positioned to take that on? The majority of the people who endeavor to start a nonprofit organization started because they saw a need in their community or they had a passion for something. They saw a gap that they wanted to fill and they just decided to do it, not realizing what it means to fully be a nonprofit or how nonprofits even actually work. So one of the first things I would recommend is do some research on how nonprofits actually work, the business behind the nonprofit. So I would suggest that they get an education on how nonprofits actually work. Last week, I just completed a fellowship. It was a nonprofit executive management program at Georgetown University that I was able to get a fellowship through Micron Technology, and they call it the Micron Technology Fellows, and it's an executive nonprofit management program at Georgetown. That program I just took last week is going to change everything about how my organization moves. Just by being in proximity with these people who have advanced knowledge, who have been in, in philanthropy and the nonprofit foundation sector for 20 years plus. So I would say to you, go out and get an education, take some webinars, watch all your videos, because there's so many different people coming from different backgrounds. Whatever you're doing, chances are somebody else is doing it. Go talk to them figure out how you can work with them and gain the knowledge that you need to further what you want to do. So you're not in a vacuum. And most of us think that we're in a vacuum and we're going out and nobody wants to do this work. But there's other people out there doing that work that will be more than happy to share with you what your next step should be. And if you're presenting to them, here's where I am, here's what I want to do, what should I do next? So get out there and start looking within your community or even outside of your community to people who are already doing what you want to do. I love that. When you think about setting up a board for this, a board as you're starting a nonprofit, who have been some key players or relationships? And maybe they're on your board of directors, maybe they're not, maybe they support in a different capacity, but 
What have you found to be like, ooh, like bringing somebody with this skill set on my board really made a difference when it came to this? Or I'm thinking about, you know, there are those early development of resources that people need to be thinking about, like their logic model or their budget or all those things. But then there's also the assembly of the team. And oftentimes I see, particularly with boards, this desperation to have a vanity board, right? Right. Like here are the people that it's going to look really good to sit on my board. And then, you know, that can lead to, sometimes that's great and it ends up being really helpful. Sometimes that leads to a lot of challenges. And so I'm thinking just to hear from your experience and perspective, like what has been some of your learning in that department? That's interesting because when you don't come from the nonprofit sector and you're like, okay, I'm going to start this 501c3. You're not thinking about the board. You're not thinking about the board and what their role is in relation to your vision because you have this vision and you're not thinking about all of the working parts that need to make this machine run effectively and efficiently. So when I first started, I came into it from an entrepreneurial perspective. So I said, okay, my business is tech. We teach tech and STEM. I need somebody in tech and STEM who's influential. And I was very fortunate in the fact that when I started this organization, I used to train this kid named Jaden and his father ended up, his, was a VP of a tech corporation. So I talked to him about what I wanted to do. And it's like, Gerald, I would love to support that vision. So I, I looked at it from that perspective. Okay, so I have somebody in tech just in, in nature of networking over time. I knew I needed an attorney on my team. So I've reached out to a couple of attorneys I knew and said, hey, this is my vision. This is what I want to do. Could you support me in getting this thing started? I knew I needed an accountant. I needed somebody who knew something about financing because we're in the education space. I knew some principals. I've reached out to a bunch of them, told them about my vision. I was able to get a principal on my board. At the time when we launched was during 2020, the whole George Floyd thing was happening. So Amidst everything that was going on there in this whole diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, thing, one of my good friend's wife was diversity and inclusion. So I reached out to her and said, hey, at this particular time, you would be awesome to be on my board. So I strategically looked at the different things that we would need as an organization and started to search out those people to put in place. Now, the conversation I have with them early on is most people not knowing what I knew now, you need a working board. You need a working board. You need people who are going to advocate for the organization, not people who just support your vision, like supporting your vision and advocating and supporting going down the road. Those are two different things. But the people I put in place, I let them know that, hey, down the road, There may be changes, but I need this right now to get this thing started. And let's revisit the conversation every six months. So let's revisit where we are in the organization every six months. And if you want to continue to sit on this board or move on. And what has happened is the majority of the people that I put on the original board saw the work that we were doing. And even I had a couple of people roll off. But when they rolled off, they said, I have somebody to replace me, which has been, that doesn't happen. That doesn't happen for the most part. But I would tell people, friends and family, no, not a good idea because they're going to support you just to support you. They see your vision. But then when it's time to do the work, 
there sometimes become conflict because they don't have the passion that you have considering you started the organization and it's your vision. Your friends and family may not have that same passion. So when they don't have that same passion, now you're frustrated because they're on your board and they're not working for you to achieve this vision. That's your vision. It's your baby for the most part. Then understanding that you created it and you're the founder, but this is not your baby. The nonprofit organization is owned by the state and it is not your baby. And those people you put on the board are just as powerful as you are in the decision-making process. So if you put people on your board that are not in alignment with your vision, there's going to be trouble. People don't understand that. Like you don't own the nonprofit. You don't own it. And soon as you put your board together, it's a group vision. It's a think tank on who's going to lead your vision. You've entrusted these people to lead your vision and have input to where you want this thing to go. And I don't think a lot of startup nonprofits understand that. So they're putting friends and family on the board. And as they move, they become roadblocks in them fulfilling what their vision is. So those are the things that I would say to someone who's starting. First, T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First T of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First T of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. Okay, I love what you're talking about right now. And I think this question is probably not going to come out perfectly because I'm I'm still kind of grappling with it myself. But there are these two pieces that you're talking about that I think are so important. Like one, understanding that the mission and the vision is really owned by community, right? Like the nonprofit is owned by the community. And so you as the founder and the executive director, the CEO, you are responsible for fulfilling that mission, that vision. But the mission and the vision can be rewritten at any time by the board of directors as a collective. And you don't get to control that. And you don't have veto power or anything like that. And so it's really interesting to me because I deeply believe in iteration and innovation in nonprofits that when we go in trying to figure out how to solve certain problems, there's no way that we know how to do it out of the gate. Like if we did, a lot of problems in society would already be solved, right? But we have some theories around levers to pull and trim tabs to use, but we have to try and learn and adjust and all of those things. And so Do you have any recommendations for like how you find people who are going to go on that journey with you? Because when you're getting those first board members, you don't know exactly what it's going to look like. You can say like, here's the goal. Like the vision can maybe stay more salient, but the mission sometimes tends to involve a little bit more about like how the vision becomes accomplished. And I find that that can shift a little bit as you get into the muck of the problem. And so 
have there been any signs or ways you've thought about recognizing alignment or red flags, either with board members or funders, where you're like, okay, like that isn't enough alignment for us to move forward because I can see these challenges down the road in trying to figure out X, Y, or Z together? So the operative word is what you just said, alignment. You have to make sure that the people you want to bring in are in alignment with your vision and not only be in alignment, but also can change, right? Mm. Because like you said, there's this iterative process to where things may change. And that actually happened with me and my organization and the way I wanted to do business and the way philanthropy does business. So I had to iterate and pivot and make some changes. So I would say to people, when you're getting this started, start small, start with a smaller board, whatever that minimum number of people is, start small and then add after that. Once you have your board together to really found the organization, if there's other people that want to participate, instead of making them full members of your board, kind of make an advisory team. So put them on your advisory team so then they're not in total control of your board and you don't have to really fight those people. They have an opportunity to give input, but you're not battling your board. There's just this advisory staff that you've put together to give you some knowledge or some wisdom in a way to go or maybe make connections. So starting small, figuring out what it is that your work actually is and how it's going to work because those things involve in relationship to funding and relationship to maybe a partnership. Maybe some other organization comes in and says, hey, we do this work and you do that work. You would be a great complement to the work that we do. And being able to align yourself with other organizations and Having a small board who's willing to say, okay, we can see that. We can make that pivot. But starting with a large board when you're just starting and you really don't know what the work is, you have this vision and you want to fill this gap, but you don't really know how it's going to work. So when that is there, you kind of need to be, and I'm going to go back to being an entrepreneur, you got to be nimble. You got to be able to pivot. You got to be able to take that. And now we have the nonprofit business model canvas. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with that? I love right. So in the it. entrepreneur's space, you have the business model canvas. But now in the nonprofit sector, you have that nonprofit business model canvas where you can iterate. You can see your whole plan on one paper. And when you need to pivot and go in a different direction, now you can bring this smaller group of people in and say, okay, we're going to throw this thing on the board and see how it works. For me, it's almost been as much of a challenge as it has been fun. It's been fun. And what I realized for a lot of people, it's not fun. You get in and you have this work and you have this vision and it becomes more of a drain and people are using their own funds. And I would suggest to people, don't use your own funds because that is going to be a point of frustration that you started this thing and you're using your own money and nobody sees the value and you're taking from your household. Many of us have families and we're burning ourselves out and giving more to this community thing that we're doing and taking away from our families. And being in this sector for going on four years now, there's this big push to counter people being burned out in the philanthropy space. 
I love what you just said about the fun that you're having. And I'm sure that there are days that are really not fun too. And that there are days when you're hitting roadblocks or hearing no from a funder or seeing another gate somewhere around funding where it can feel really discouraging. How do you keep yourself focused and positive and motivated in the midst of that? The boys I work with, because we started with no money. I didn't have a wealthy benefactor that said, hey, here's this organization, you're going to run it. So prior to even doing the nonprofit, what fueled me was the boys that I work. So every time I get a new young man and we get a chance to youth tech entrepreneurs program or our certified BIPOC boys program, the young men move me. I actually, I was invited to speak at another organization's event. And one of their board members came up to me and he was like, man, you guys are doing awesome work. Like I see you guys everywhere. And he said, what is your budget? And I started laughing. He was like, why are you laughing? I said, the budget is what we have at any given moment to do a program. I said, we have a budget, but it's not a budget that comes in in the beginning of the year. And we know we have $500,000 to do a certain amount of work. I said, we have programming that we're going to do whether we have the money or not. And then we know that we will fulfill that budget. So he looks at me and he says, how do you do that? So I said, here's the difference. You do work based on your budget. I do work because it's necessary. And I said, those are two different things, right? So if you don't have the money, you're going to cut a program. If I don't have the money, I'm going to launch the program. Because I know that doing the work and showcasing the young men that we serve, that the money will come. And I'm not in a position to do it the other way because my work can't wait. When I look at what's happening in my community, my work can't wait. So that's not how we, as a startup nonprofit, that's not how we can do it. I can't just say, okay, I have this $500,000 budget and we're going to do programming. So that's what fuels me. That's what keeps me motivated. And a lot of it, like what I do is my story. So I'm a tech guy. I love doing tech. I love doing tech more now that I'm doing it for a reason. On the corporate side, whether we win or whether we lose, I'm going to get a check. Everybody's going to get paid. Sometimes it just doesn't matter on the other side of the work. We're just going to work. A lot of times we don't even see the outcome. We develop a software package. We deliver it to the company we leave. We don't see it. I take a young man through our youth tech entrepreneurs program and he goes from not believing he has a space in tech to developing his own app and pitching it in a Shark Tank style. Seeing that and participating in that, it changes you. So I feel like I can't let these young men down and I am them. I am them. And it just becomes something that is energizing for the most part. I had a vacation last week. I just came off vacation. And I couldn't wait to get back. I couldn't wait to get back. Now, further on down the road, as we grow and it becomes this more of a management of people and resources, then I may have to find something else to fuel me because my goal is to not only have a fully funded organization, but to reach our grand vision, which is to impact 100,000 BIPOC boys by 2030. But in my mind, Mission Fulfilled 2030, when I created the organization, Mission Fulfilled 2030 is past tense. It means it's already done. I already see the vision. So I'm just going through the motion to make it happen at this point. It definitely keeps me motivated. Every no I get gets me closer to yes. So it's how you see what's actually happening to you at any given time. 
like to get an opportunity to expose my organization to a foundation who doesn't believe in us is motivating to me because now I'm like, watch and see. That just motivates me in general. And the fact that I'm here, the fact that I'm here three years later, well, going on four years now, and how we started with zero dollars to D4 grants in, and we've probably grassroots fundraised two or three hundred thousand dollars at this point. Like the vision is in perpetual motion. People are starting to take my calls, which is motivating <laughs> in itself. When people take your call and be like, I know who you are, right? Mm. You know, so that becomes motivating. So, but people getting into this know that it's not easy. It's not easy. A lot of people are not going to believe in you. A lot of people who do what you do are not going to believe in you. A lot of foundations who believe in you don't believe in you enough to fund you. So you just keep going because it's what you do. It's who you are, but definitely don't burn yourself out, ramming your head against the wall against a system that's not working. Like you said, pivot, iterate, and keep it moving. Because whatever you do, whatever sector you're in, whether it is trying to provide meals for people, homelessness, women's shelters, no matter what it is that you're doing, that work cannot wait. So that's a philosophy that we have that I push that across the board to anybody who's in this sector. You're doing this thing for a reason. You're throwing everything into it. But if you're not maintaining your mental health, physical health, mental health, if you're not maintaining those things, then you can't do this. So get the right people yeah. involved and just enjoy what you do. When it gets to a point where you're not enjoying it, take a step back. Gosh, I really just want to end there and double click on everything that you just said. I think holding that balance around urgency of the work that we're doing and our passion for that mixed with the self and community care necessary to recognize that this is a long road. There's like this piece of urgency that makes us self-sacrifice a lot because urgency creates this short-term feeling, but this is long-term work. And so we can use that urgency to remind us of why we're doing this work right now, but not take it on so much that we don't do the other things we need to be able to sustain the work long-term. So I just, I love all of that wisdom that you shared. Thank you so much for this conversation today. I'm so excited for everyone to get to meet you and learn from you. Where can they go if they're interested in connecting with you, want to learn more about the organization, support if they can. Thank you so much for this time today. Thank you, Mallory. I'm super excited about this. And if you want to connect with Mission Fulfilled 2030, it's just missionfulfilled2030.org. We're active on Instagram at missionfulfilled2030. We're active on LinkedIn at Mission Fulfilled 2030. I'm very active on LinkedIn at Gerald A. Moore Sr. So definitely check us out there. If you need a youth tech entrepreneurs program in your community, reach out to me and we'll make it happen. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Matt.
Okay, there is so much inside this episode that I love, but here are my favorite takeaways. Number one, I appreciate that Gerald shared some of his first things that funders were asking of him, like budgets. It's so important to get clarity from funders as much as possible before meeting them about what they hope to see in the meeting and what they're going to ask you for. Number two, It is true that there are a lot of gates when it comes to funding, particularly for black and brown leaders and particularly institutional funding. So understanding where you have leverage, assets and introductions to help you get your foot in the door can be really helpful. Number three, community involvement is so important for your fundraising and for designing your nonprofit. I love how Gerald looked at all the different ways his organization touched and impacted community to think about the network and fabric of support he needed to build around the organization. And number four, this goes right to his suggestion about board structure and recruitment, which is so important. That idea of a working board. You don't want a vanity board that just looks good on paper. You want people who are deeply committed to the vision and mission with you, that are aligned with you and will go on the journey with you and get into the muck with you because the beginning is going to be iterative and messy and you need a group of people who understand the different facets of your work and are not afraid to get their hands dirty. And lastly, I'm so glad we talked about the balance of the emotional urges that surround the urgency of the problems that we deal with and the need for self-preservation and the long game. This is a really important balance for us all to lean into. Okay, for additional takeaways and tips inside this episode, head on over to MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast to grab the full show notes and resources now. You'll also find more information there about Gerald and our amazing sponsors, Bloomerang. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I am so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.